0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. We've been working our way through this beautiful letter in the title of this series. We've creatively called it First Corinthians. And and it's about a, a church that's just a terrible mess, kind of like us. We're very, very gifted. God has been very kind to us as a church these past six years. But, like the Corinthians, we're we're uh, we're recovering idolaters. We're pardoned rebels, and we serve a beautiful Savior. And the messes that this church found themselves in are some of the very same messes we find ourselves in here today. In particular, here in these. Few chapters that we're in right now, chapters 12, 13, and 14, the issue that the Apostle Paul is correcting is their abuse of the spiritual gifts that God has given them through the Holy Spirit. And God had, in His kindness, gifted this church very significantly, but yet they had turned this gift in, inward and made it kind of self serving. In particular, they were, they were confused over the operation of several particular, more uh, spectacular gifts the gift of tongues, and the gift of prophecy. We handled a little bit, very briefly, about what those were last week. And so if you missed that, you can check the podcast or the website. Uh, I think we're having problems with our CD duplicator, so we'll have CDs hopefully next week of the message. And then next week we'll handle the love chapter that we often hear read at weddings, but really doesn't have much to do with the love between a man and a woman, although it would apply to that. It has more to do with the love that a church should have for one another as they operate in these gifts. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll get into chapter 14, where we will very precisely and thoroughly talk about the, these gifts of tongues and prophecy and how they were being used out of order in the Corinthian church. This week, we're going to finish up chapter 12, where Paul is giving them the context for how these gifts should operate in the body of Christ, in this local expression called the church. And so... Today, I really just have two points that are really negative points. There are two things that I think Christians are two attitudes that Christians should never have about the church, and they come from our text, and Paul in this text is really addressing two people. He's addressing a group of people who feel sort of superior because they had maybe a particular gift that they had that some other folks in the church did not have. Maybe it was the gift of tongues, we're not sure, but whatever it was, they were were feeling a bit superior over these less than they were in their minds gifted people in the church. And then he, halfway down in the text that we'll read today, addresses those who felt inferior in the body of Christ uh, because maybe they didn't have a gift that they had. In fact, actually, I, I think I inverted that. He's, he addresses the people that feels inferior first and then those that feel superior. So I just have two sort of negative statements about how two attitudes we should never have as Christians in a local church. Well, before I do that, let me, let me pray, and then we'll read, and then we'll, uh, we'll get going. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for the Bible. We believe that it is your word entirely. that It is true, that it's without error, that it's sufficient, that it's clear, and that it carries with it all authority. So, Lord, we humble ourselves now as prideful, selfish Americans, who have filled our lives with trinkets and machines and systems and things by which we make ourselves feel independent and self-sufficient. And we now humble ourselves from our subconscious self-sufficiency under the mighty power of your word. The Apostle Peter writes that it is through this word that people are born again. No man or woman comes to you through his own effort or her own effort. Lord, only grace can do that. The grace that the Holy Spirit supplies to cause a person to see Jesus comes through the portal of the Word of God. So Lord, would you do that today? Would you, even as we are speaking about what life should look like in a local body of Christ, would you awaken the heart of a person in this room who does not know you as their Savior, and would you cause them to see Jesus, cause them to pass from death to life and faith in you. And Lord, for the rest of us who are already Christians in here, Lord, would you stir in our hearts an affection for Jesus and his body and the local church to the glory of God and to the joy of your people. I pray that you do these things. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to read and stop, read and stop, and just kind of work through the text as we go. So let's begin reading in verse 12. Paul writes For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body Jews and Greeks slaves are free and all were made to drink of one spirit okay so in these first two verses let me stop there what paul is saying is he's giving them the context for what he just spoke to them in the first eleven verses that we went through last week that, that these particular nine gifts that were not an exhaustive list of all the gifts that the holy spirit had given to the church in god's providence but these nine particular gifts that i think were probably just on paul's mind about the corinthian church that he lists like the gift of wisdom and knowledge and tongues and faith and miracles and healings and discerning of spirits and the interpretation of tongues. These things Paul mentions, and he says that it's, it's, these things have been given to some of you Christians. In fact, all of you Christians, that was one of the main points of last week, have been given a gift. So if you, are a, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a Christian, you have been given a significant and needed spiritual gift for the purpose of building up the body of Christ and glorifying the name of Jesus. And then Paul says that this gift isn't just some sort of random silo or some sort of haystack that's kind of out in the middle of the field that's disconnected to what God is doing, but it's been given to you for a purpose of then joining together with this thing called the body of Christ. And so this, this, he calls the church the body of Christ. And then he makes this statement about what the Spirit does to us as Christians in verse 13. And let me just give you a little background on this verse. This is one of those verses that uh, has tangled up Christians for centuries. This is one of those verses that is a sort of a, a hot pancake in theological debate circles. And people have many different thoughts about what this verse is saying. There's, Like we talked about last week, and this is painting with very broad brushes, That there's basically three kind of uh, camps about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There are Pentecostals who believe that all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still in operation today. And they believe that there is a sort of second after conversion sort of experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that is always evidenced by speaking in tongues. And so if you haven't spoken in tongues, they're not saying that you're not a Christian, but they are saying that you haven't received this sort of second experience of power that will be evidenced by tongues. That's one camp. And then there's kind of another camp on the other side of the spectrum that says that these more miraculous gifts have ceased with the age of the apostles and that people don't necessarily operate in those gifts today, and um, that what we read in the Bible was just to affirm the ministry of the apostles, but it doesn't really happen today. And then there's, so there's kind of two extremes, the Pentecostals and those that believe the gifts have ceased, and then there's kind of a middle, larger group, which we find ourselves part of, and that is that we believe all of the gifts continue. I would consider myself a continuationist, but that not necessarily every that not necessarily tongues is going to be an indicator of any particular second experience. And so this particular verse here where it says in verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, is hotly debated in theological circles between the Pentecostals and those that believe the gifts have ceased. Pentecostals believe that this verse is referring to a sort of second baptism, that you're made a Christian by Jesus, of course, And then there's this second baptism called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they're thinking that maybe that verse refers to it. And then the people on the other side of the spectrum and some of the people in the middle would say, no, this verse is talking about that the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body in conversion. Now just full disclaimer here, that's what I think this verse is saying. You may come from a different perspective. You may never have read this verse before, and this is the first time you've heard that. That's fine, but I don't think it it has a lot of bearing on what we're going to do today. But the, the point that I think Paul is making there is that God makes us Christians through the gospel that comes to our heart by the Holy Spirit. And so when God makes a person a Christian, when he opens up their eyes to their sin and their rebellion and their separation from God. And He opens their eyes to the glory of what Jesus has done on the cross. I think this verse is saying that in that moment, the Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. And we are, we are now at the moment of conversion. At the moment when faith is expressed in what Jesus has done and repentance is, and sorrow for sin is expressed in that moment you become grafted into the body of Christ in that moment you become adopted as a child of God there are the implications of this verse are huge that means that at that moment of baptism at that moment of conversion by the spirit there are no second class citizens in the body of Christ there's no there's no JV and varsity, I drove by, it's just a tradition when I go home to El Centro, I drive by, you know, me and my dad, we go get, you know, some, some breakfast and some, some tacos at Celia's Taco Shop, which is the best Mexican food in the world in my hometown. And then we drive past, we don't need to, it's actually out of the way, but we just drive by the high school football field and just, yeah, I remember, you remember when, yeah. Why was I talking about my high school fo- Oh, you know why? It's because when I was a kid... There was a separation between those people who played on Thursday night and those people who played on Friday night, right? If you played on Friday night, you got to wear your jersey on Friday, letterman jacket. You were the big man on campus. If you played on Thursday night, you were still probably a sophomore or a not very talented junior on the JV. And here's the deal, friends, is that, is that Paul in this text is dealing with a group of Christians who have divided themselves wrongly into varsity and junior varsity camps because there's some that think they have this gift that makes them more spiritual and they're looking down the end of their noses at those who are playing on Thursday nights. And what this verse, I think, is saying is that there is no JV in Christian circles. We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And now in verse 14, he gets into two attitudes that Christians should not have about the church. And first he addresses the group that felt inferior and insecure in comparison to those who seemed to be more gifted. And he writes this in verse 14. Listen to these words. This is not rocket science, friends. The truth just springs from the text. Just read along closely and think deeply with me. Verse 14. For the body, think about this, think about this analogy that he's drawing, that the body of Christ, the church is the, that I think Paul is trying to stamp out in the church amongst those who felt inferior, and that is this attitude that I don't belong here. Listen again to what Paul is saying in this argument. He's saying to people in verse 14 or 15, he says, if you're a foot, you can't say to the hand, oh, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. What's Paul saying there? He's saying to a person who maybe feels like they're less gifted or they're not as presentable or they're not as charismatic to use the word that he would use, then you can't look at that person and say, oh, because I'm not gifted like that person, or I don't have this, or I'm not in that social circle or whatever, then I am not part of the body. Paul says that you, as a Christian, because you've been baptized into this body, it wasn't your work, it was the Holy Spirit's work, bringing the gospel to your heart, you don't have the right to say that you're not part of this thing called the body of Christ or the church. Paul's point here is that those who consider themselves less gifted were discouraged and seeming to wallow a bit in self-pity. Friends, this happens all the time in church culture, even today. People, I think even most of us that would consider ourselves Christians would never ultimately think that we don't belong to Jesus or are not part of His universal church. Friends, I think that many of us in this room may have possibly bought into the lie that we are destined to a sort of disconnectedness from this idealistic notion of the fact that we are part of the body of Christ. Why why do some people feel like they don't belong? In fact, some of you may be struggling right now internally, very deeply, just being in this room. You just feel disconnected. You're on the fringe. You don't have any real heart relationships in this room. And, and it's a difficult place, and the, the enemy's wanting to come in and lie to your heart and tell you that you don't belong. Why are some of the reasons that we, we have difficulty connecting and feeling like we belong to the body of Christ? Why is that? I've just jotted down a few reasons. The first, I think, is covetousness. I think there's this sort of idolatry and pride that exists in all of our hearts, and that when we walk into a new situation or a new room or a new group of people, immediately we are scanning the room, seeing how we compare. And when we immediately esteem that we don't maybe measure up to everybody else in the room, we become negative and close ourselves off. And maybe secretly we become covetous of what we perceive the other people have or the community that they have or the security that they have or the gift that they have. And ultimately, it's an insecurity in our hearts. Really, in that moment, everything is shrunk down as to whether or not we feel comfortable in this situation. And that often keeps people on the fringes of the body of Christ. Insecurities are another thing. Uh, that, that springs out of that. It's understandable. We all have insecurities. Life can be intimidating. But do you realize that when you, when you let insecurities, when we let insecurities dominate us, r- really in that moment, do you realize that's an idol? That, that insecurity, that sense of comparison to another person or that sense of inferiority really has become sort of your god and it becomes sort of your functional deity. I mean, we've all been insecure, haven't we? Been in a room, you know how you know if you've got insecurities? You take you take these two fingers and you just you just put them right right here. And if you feel something, <laughs> you've got insecurities. And probably what's happening in the Corinthian church is there were some people who considered themselves maybe less gifted. Maybe they're the same people that a couple chapters ago were newer converts to Christianity that were maybe blue-collar or lower-class Christians who are now being born again and saved into this church where there were some rich Christians who, whose house that they were meeting at who were in a higher social strata than they were and who were going to these parties where there was some meat being sacrificed to pagan gods that they were eating and that whole deal we talked about, remember, in chapter 8 and 10? And so maybe there's a social economic sort of division here. And maybe it exists for some of you. You walk into this room and you look at somebody that you knew growing up that went to a certain high school and you know what they do now. And that instantly becomes a barrier to you and you think because of the way you look or what is not in your bank account compared to theirs that you don't fit in. Friends, do you realize that in that moment you are buying into the lie? You, in that moment, are saying that you, since you are a foot and not a hand, or since you're an eye and not an ear, that you don't belong to the body. And in that moment, you are making God's providence in your life. You, you You are disdaining that, and you are coveting that thing that that person has, which we'll talk about in just a second, may very well be their curse. And you, in that moment, are letting your insecurity be your functional God. And that functional God is dominating you and keeping you on the fringes and causing you to be hostile and bitter and really arrogant towards the people that you think are arrogant towards you. Is that that anybody in this room? I think that, that sort of subconscious classification pervades the American church. The Apostle Paul wants to stamp it out and I think that the Holy Spirit wants to stamp it out in our church as well. Another thing that keeps us from feeling like we don't belong is past hurts over and over and over again. Man, I tell you, I mean, I, when we're doing these new member interviews and hearing about people and their history in church, and it's, just break, it's heartbreaking, really, to listen to some people's bad experiences in church life and how they've been banged up. In fact, many of you are here in this church because you've been banged up in a church You've been busted up, man. And quite honestly, you're, you, man, we want to love you, but you, you really haven't given your heart to this group of believers because you're just waiting for the day when we disappoint you. Well, we, we will disappoint you. Community will bang you up, being part of the body will bust you up. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian uh, and pastor, wrote in a book called Life Together, the classic exploration of faith and community. If you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, he was a young, brilliant theologian, German theologian in the 1920s and 30s. He was here teaching in the United States at a seminary when Hitler was coming to power in Germany. And he could have stayed here in the United States and just continued in his cushy professorship job at some seminary. But he felt that God was calling him to go back to his native Germany to uh, oppose the Third Reich and Hitler so he did that he went back to Germany and he started an underground church and in fact uh, this is a whole nother story but it really sort of transformed Christian ethics in our century he felt like God was calling him to actually plot to assassinate Hitler because he was aware of all that was what Hitler was doing and so he was eventually uh, that plot was found out and Bonhoeffer was arrested and he spent several years in prison and three weeks before the end of World War II he was, he, was, he was murdered, he was hung in his prison cell three weeks before Germany fell and he died as a 39 year old man but while he was in prison he wrote some books uh, and before he was in prison in this underground church he wrote a book about Christian community and this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about this mess in this, this often broken ideal that we have of Christian community and how we need to just roll up our sleeves and embrace the fact that church life, that body life is messed up. This is what he writes. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian, sat down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and, if we are fortunate, with ourselves. Listen to this. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God of the emotions, but the God of truth. Only that fellowship, which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. In other words, friends, If if you've got this sort of Pollyanna, overly idealistic notion of what church should be, and you've been disappointed, and maybe you you've been hurt, you've been sinned against, and, and now you sort of carry with you as your functional savior this notion of what should be in church, friends, do you realize that you may need to lay down that idealistic notion? That 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 sort of dream that you have sort of perceived might actually be the thing that is keeping you from actually experiencing the ritty, really raw, messy, sanctifying life of being in a local church that is one of the hardest things you can do. I think the two most sanctifying things that you can do is get married and join a local church and not just run off to a bunch of other local churches every time something upsets you and paul is writing to people who are dominated by their insecurities and he's saying don't buy into the lie that you don't belong that you don't belong you belong you have been baptized into the body of christ and so you christian if you are a confessing christian and you believe in jesus you biblically need to give your heart to a group of people that are a messed up group of pardoned rebels just like you and if this is the place that god has called you to do it then do it Don't float, man. Don't be on the periphery of the body of Christ. And that's what Paul writes to these Christians. And he says, you belong. You belong. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 21. Now he addresses the group that felt superior and looked down their noses at those who were seemingly less gifted. The sort of arrogant Christians, probably, who had the gift of tongues, who were dominating some of their group meetings with tambourines and, you know, I don't think they had tambourines back then, but you know what I'm talking about. Whatever they did back then to draw attention to themselves like we see often in church culture in our day, they seemed to be doing, and they were very proud of themselves because they had a gift or two. And Paul writes to them, and he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So if the first attitude that Paul was addressing was these inferior feeling Christians who were, who were insecure about where they stood with these seemingly more gifted Christians, and he would say to them, don't buy this lie that you don't belong. Then he says to these superior feeling Christians, don't buy this lie and this attitude that says, I don't need you. No Christian can say to another Christian, I, I don't need you. I don't need to be part of the body of Christ. I don't need to be a member of a local church. I've been hurt. I've done the rounds. I was at that, I was at that church and then that church. And, you know, sometimes I meet people and they, can, they, they tell me how close they are to all the preachers here in town. Oh, this guy, uh, Bible study. Uh, who, who are you accountable to, Jack? Who? Who do you really belong to? Who are you really rubbing elbows with? Who? Whose heart? Who, who, who has authority? Who? Who really is holding you? And Paul writes to these Christians and he's saying, we can't say, because God has given us some sort of measure of stability in our lives, we can't look down at other Christians and say, I don't need you. The gifted Corinthians didn't need what they considered to be less gifted people. As I was meditating on this, we was flying back from San Diego to Atlanta, I started to just think about how oftentimes God's giftedness, if we're not wise with how we handle it, can actually become an obstacle in our lives without humility. And you know, really, that's one of my great fears for this church and for many of us here. Is I think God has gifted us very significantly. And unless we handle that gift or that thing that God has given us, it can actually become an obstacle because we allow our lives to sort of dead end on that gift. I mean, maybe God has made you very wise and very intelligent, and you have merely used that wisdom and intelligence for just financial profit. Maybe God has made you very financially secure, and you, you, you just you use that for vacations. Or maybe God has given you some other gift, and, and, and really you, you have just bought into this dumbed down culture in the bible belt that minimizes the importance of the local church and you've just kind of floated around from place to place and you've never really given your gift to the body of christ so that it might be used and you're you're gifted you're strong you're wise you're prominent man you've, you've got everything going for you but you have no real fruit friends That scares me for It scares me for me sometimes. Because I know... I mean, I say this with all humility. I know God has has been kind to me. And so what am I going to use these gifts for? Just, just, Just for my own personal enjoyment of Bible study? God didn't give me a mind to look at the scriptures so that I would have good personal Bible studies or quiet time. He gives you a mind, friend. He gives you resources. He gives you whatever He gives you solely so that it'll be like... PVC pipe, man, so they don't take water from the main line and pump it into the house of God. That's all it is. That's what you are, your PVC pipe, and you're packed under a bunch of mud, man. And you've been cut a bunch of time, couplings, a little glue that just stick to PVC pipe. That's all you are. You're just PVC pipe under 12 inches of mud. That's all you are, man, if you're a Christian. But here's the glory of what the scripture is saying, is that what flows through you shouldn't dead in on you as a well but that God has given it to you for a purpose to bless the body of Christ. And these gifted Corinthians were letting their gifts dead end on themselves. When strength and giftedness in whatever form it may be given to you dead ends on you, it becomes a terribly dangerous thing it becomes a terribly dangerous thing. Paul is writing to these Corinthians and he's writing to us and he's saying that there's two attitudes that Christians cannot have about the church. The first, for those of us that feel insecure and have made an idol out of our insecurities, he's saying, don't buy into the lie that you don't belong. And to the more stable and secure and gifted Corinthians, those in Crosspoint, he would say, you cannot click into this subconscious independence where you're never really needed, and you don't need anybody else. Let's keep reading in verse 27 and finish up. He says, now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. And what's he saying there is he that's another list of gifts, again, like the list of gifts that we read in verses seven through uh, nine or seven through eleven in the first part of the chapter. I don't that's not an exhaustive list. I think that's probably just a gift, a list of gifts that came to Paul's mind. And so he mentions apostles, which are those that uh, that were the 12 disciples of Jesus, minus one, Judas, who fell out, plus Matthias, who was chosen later in the book of Acts, and then Paul, who had a post-resurrection reappearance of Jesus to himself, became an apostle. These apostles were the 12 disciples who saw the resurrected Jesus and carried with them a special authority to plant churches and to spread the gospel in that first century century and prophets, God has given, we talked about prophecy, we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 14, and he's just listing some gifts that have been brought to bear on the Corinthian church, and maybe in the order that they were brought to bear in the establishing of the Corinthian church, Paul's apostleship, then some people that could speak exhorting words, clarifying Christ with prophetic words, and then teachers, pastors, and people maybe that performed miracles to build the faith of the Corinthian church, gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongue, and he's just, again, Just rattling off a list saying, These things God has brought to bear on you. And then in verse 29, he strings together a a sort of rhetorical question that is an obvious no to all of these things. And then, so that they don't get hung up on one particular gift, he says in verse 29, Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The obvious answer to those questions is, no, no. Because he's wanting to steer their hearts away from dead ending on one gift. and Making them realize that God has gifted the whole church with various types of gifts for the advance of the gospel and the building up of the body. And then in verse 31, he ends by saying, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. What are the higher gifts? Well, that's a much debated sentence. I think probably the higher gifts means the gifts that more prominently are understood by the church. And in chapter 14, he's going to talk about how prophecy is more valuable than tongues because it's in the language of the person who uh, who are assembled. And so I think a higher gift is those that are more useful to the church. But we'll talk about that in chapter 14. And then he sets up chapter 13, and he establishes love as the undergirding principle upon all of this should be based. And he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. The two attitudes that Christians should not have about the church is, number one, I don't belong, and number two, I don't need you. And then as a final sort of statement about what I believe these verses, the end of chapter 12, are about, is this one phrase. And that phrase is this, that as Christians in community, we are to declare war on self-absorption and independence. As Christians in community, we are to declare war on self-absorption and independence. Who needs you? Who, who needs you? Does this church need you? Like, have you made yourself necessary? Are you really, really gifted? But are you, are you necessary? Like, is anybody depending on you? If you're a Christian, you were made to be depended on by your local church. You were made to sign up for something regularly so that you make the thing go. Do you need anyone? Who do you need? Are you just a kind of a, a captain of your own soul, just independent, shoot in maybe two out of four months, you're here, you do your thing? You're round enough to where nobody really asks you what's going on in your life, but you're just not, you're not knit together with the body of Christ. You may need to make war on your subconscious self-absorption and independence. You know, as I was preparing this, I was just thinking about the people that, that make this church go, that have just, in my mind, just personified these, these verses in the positive. They're just they're just there and at the risk of starting to mention names uh, and leaving somebody out and hurting somebody's feelings which would be an indication of your self-absorption if i don't mention your name and yeah leave your name out <laughs> let's let that just be a little teaching point for you just think of i think of stephen hall this guy who's just been part of the church from the get-go and prepares communion every sunday for us and just as dependable as the day is long quiet and is probably even mortified and embarrassed that I'm mentioning his name because his spirit is so humble and genuine. He's just, we depend on him. My heart is comforted because Stephen is in the room. He's around, and I'm, I just, things go better. Every Sunday I come here, and the, there's two couples, the Orliches and the Barneses, they're here. They're just doing stuff. They're just opening doors, turning on air conditioners, setting stuff up. They're just dependable people. Think of David Garcia, runs the video stuff, downloads it on late on Sunday night, just puts it on the web, just no, no thanks, no, no applaud, no, just, just does it, just very helpful. I think, of, I think of the good attitudes of a vast majority of the nursery workers in this church who just serve, man. They just serve. They're just there. Look, it's long. I know I preach long. Man, I know that. What do you think? I woke up last night. I know I preach long. I think you need long sermons, I do. I think we waste our life on stupid stuff. I think we watch more Fox News and reality TV. Most of you probably spent more time this past week on some stupid reality TV show than you did the Bible. I'm not beating you up, I'm just calling a spade a spade. And so I think you need long, expositional sermons. I think that's what you need. I don't ever think about time. I just start, we, we go through the book, I see a text that seems to be one block of thought and I preach it and I start and I finish when I'm done. I think you need that. But I know it has implications. I know sometimes that I go for a long time. And I know sometimes some of you are stuck with a crazy two-year-old for almost two hours. And I know there are women in this church who schedule those nurseries and they do it with joy and humility. Maybe not always joy, but humility. (laughs) And they do it over and over and over again. And oh, they are the fabric that binds this thing together. Musicians come in here every Sunday morning at 8.30, sleepy, man. They're out, they're just sleep, just coming, dragging their stuff in. And about halfway through, it starts sounding like music. And then they're just here. Not, not during the service. I'm talking about when they're warming up. And they're just dependable, man. They're just, they're just dependable. And so many of you are meeting together, so many older Christians are meeting with younger Christians faithfully through the week. God has blessed you, man. God has brought you through stuff. And, and there's, there's an older man in this church, and he, he, he's not that old, but I'm looking at him right now. I'm not going to embarrass him, but he meets with young guys all the time, and he just pours out his life to him, man. and he's faithful, and he's dependable, and, and nobody's putting his name in lights, and he just does it, man. He just does it. He does it and he gets outside of his social sphere, you know. He's not meeting with a bunch of other guys that are about 60 and in his same sort of demographic. He's meeting with young guys who are 20 years old who don't know what an alarm clock is, who need to know what it's like to have responsibilities and a mortgage and to love a wife well. That is what the body of Christ is built on, man. That's why we got people, there's a church full of them here. Are you one of those people? Are you one of those people? That's what I think Paul and the Holy Spirit is asking us today. Are you one of those people? Declare war on self-absorption. Declare war on independence. Well, I have to do it myself. You know what the worst block of time for me in the whole week is? Is Sunday afternoons. Do you know why? Because I go home and I sulk about my own performance. And, and, and you, it's, it's hard being married to me. I am a complicated cat, first of all. That's just like the baseline fabric. I'm just a complicated dude. And then God made me a pastor. And I get up in front of 500 or 600 people every Sunday, and I preach, and then I go home, and I just, oh, I'm just racked with self-absorption. Right? So, so I need to make war on my self-absorption. And some of you in this room need to make war on it yourself because you, you could float along for the next 30 years. And nobody would question whether or not you truly know Jesus or not. But friends, are you bearing fruit? Are you bearing fruit? Who needs you? Don't buy into the lie that you're disqualified. Don't buy into the lie that, that now you've got to enjoy your retirement. Don't buy into that lie, friends. And some of you have distanced yourself from Christian community because you've bought into this lie that you're disqualified. friends. Friends, that is not the truth. Just this Wednesday morning, I got up at 4.30 in the morning because I was still on East Coast time. And it was 7.30 our time and 4.30 in California. So I was twiddling my thumbs and I said, well, I'll just get up and go for a run at this park down the street from my parents' house. And I got up and I ran down the block and I ran around Buckland Park and it was a spiritual battle. Because as I was running down that street, as I was running around that park a couple times, vivid memories of things that I did in that park came flooding back to my mind. Right there, I remember when I was a little lost sinner in rebellion against God, chasing flesh. And I remember God's grace in my life. And God by His mercy and grace lifted my eyes so that I would see Jesus. And I was flooded with deep appreciation for life in Christ. Friends, do not let your past disqualify you. That's why Psalm 103 that we read at the beginning says that the heart of the Gospel is, is that God does not count, He does not repay us for our sins. Do you know why that is? It's because he he pays Jesus for our sins. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of what it means to be a Christian. He puts the punishment that we should have had on Jesus. And that doesn't apply to everybody just because you're an American. It applies only to those who've turned from self-absorption, who've turned from self-trust, and have turned to trust in Jesus, friends. That's what it means right now. And some of you are on the periphery. Some of you aren't even part of the body of Christ. And right now, the way you—the only way that you can become part of the body of Christ is by turning from your sin and turning to trust in Jesus. That's called repentance, turning away from yourself. And this is called faith, turning to trust in what Jesus has done. Do that right now, friends. That's the gospel. That's the only thing that really matters. And if God is stirring your heart and he's making your heart alive, the gospel's hitting your heart. And the Spirit right now is baptizing you. You. What should you do? Nothing, friends. Just turn and trust. Turn and trust. That's it. It's free. It's a meal that's free. Isaiah 55 says, Come, come and buy. Come and drink the meal without price. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus. If you're even hearing those words and you're realizing it, friends, that's evidence that God is giving you the faith that He requires of you. Turn, turn. Turn and trust in Jesus. Right now, believe. Believe. Be (laughs) baptized into the body by the Spirit. And realize that God has knit you together in this thing called the body so that He might make much of Himself through you. You are not disqualified if you turn and trust in Jesus. Do that even now, friends. Christians, Make war on self-absorption and independence. I, I love being your pastor. I love this. And I cannot wait to give the next 40 years of my life to messing this up and working it out with you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words. I confess that I am uh, so selfish. Lord, for still too many days and too many hours and too many minutes, my life still rotates around my belly button. And I am the master of my own universe. and uh, I am absorbed with thoughts about how I am being perceived. Lord, I repent of those things, and I pray, God, that you would, as you are lifting my eyes off of myself, that you would be so kind as to do it for my brothers and sisters here as well. Lord, there are very gifted, very capable Christians in this room who are squandering their life on themselves. They're squandering their life on comfortable social circles. They're squandering their life on things that require no faith and no risk. They're squandering their life on comfort and pleasure and self-serving things. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you grab them by the back of their neck? And would you you shake them out of self-absorption. Would you do that for me as well, Lord? I find myself in that group very often. Would you do that, Lord? Lord, there are people in this room who <laughs> are racked with insecurity and racked with self-absorption. They are racked with social anxiety. They are, they are frozen with insecurity. And it's caused them to be bitter and callous and angry. Angry first at the church then maybe even angry at you and probably deep down inside they're angry at themselves. Lord, for that brother or sister, would you be kind to them as well and would you, would you, would you lift their eyes, Lord? Would you lift their eyes from their own form of self-absorption which is, which is just as harmful as the gifted self-absorbed person. God, would you, would you lift their eyes so They would see that you, by what Christ has done on the cross, you have qualified them, you have baptized them, you have knit them together into this beautiful thing called the body of Christ for something far bigger than their own sense of security. God, would we die to the idol of comfort and fitting in? God, for those dear saints in this room who are laboring well in this regard, God, would you encourage them? Would you breathe endurance into their spirit? And would you give strength to their hands and speed to their feet and let them run well? God, I pray most of all that if there's a person in this room today who has not yet trusted in you, Lord, whether they grew up in church and they came into this room thinking they were a Christian but they've been fooling themselves, or whether they came into this room realizing that they're not and buying into the lie that maybe they're outside of your reach, God, would you smash down both of those lies? And would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, hit their heart with the gospel? Give them the gift of repentance so that they might turn away from trusting in themselves and give them the gift of faith so that they might turn to saving belief and trust in what Jesus has done on the cross as the only atoning work, as the only sacrifice for our sins. Lord, would you do that, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.